have for you today another nice, juicy psalm. So we're going to go to turn to Psalm 127. If you haven't got a Bible and you'd like to read along, then we're happy to provide one for you. Normally, that would be done by a young person, someone under the age of 18 and probably over the age of 11. But unfortunately, they're all at New Day. So if you do raise your hands as a statement of faith in that someone's going to stand up and grab a Bible, we'll make sure one gets to you. At the moment, we only have one hand, two, three, four. We've got a few hands and we've got a few Bibles. We're going to read Psalm 127. Before we do, I just want to make a brief comment about a song, the title of the psalm, which is A Song of Ascents of Solomon. A Song of Ascents is a group, uh, a group of 14 psalms have the same title, and they're likely to be psalms that were used by the people of God as they travelled up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three festivals that God had asked them to do. It was a time when they would remember what God has done, a time when they would celebrate, a time when they would refocus their lives on the things that really mattered. They take the time together as a group of people from wherever they were to lay down normal day life and travel to Jerusalem to honour and celebrate all that God had done. It means that the Psalms with those titles are ones that usually get into the real nitty-gritty of life, the ones that really get into fundamental and foundational issues. So our expectation, as we read this psalm this morning, is that God would address fundamental and foundational issues in our lives. That's my expectation, my hope, and my prayer that happens this morning. Um, It's attributed to Solomon. Solomon was um, a king of Israel, one of God's leaders, And he was noted as the wisest of the kings. He was the king that God came to and said, you can have anything you want. What do you want? And Solomon said, I want to know the difference between right and wrong. I want the wisdom of God. And God said, you have chosen well, so I'll give you wealth and riches and prosperity and favor as well. He was notably a great builder, not personally, but in terms of building the plans of God. So he put in place the temple of God, the place where God resided for the people of the Old Testament, the place where God was. He built this beautiful, magnificent temple down to the plans of God and the anointed of God. And he also built a beautiful palace for himself. He was a man who was wise, a man who built well. So when we look at this psalm, we need to take note. Yes, it's the, the word of God, but we need to take note. It's a man who knew how to build, a man who was wise. So when we read the first line about building houses, this is a man who knows what he's talking about. This is someone worth listening to. And we'll talk a little bit more about Solomon later on. But for now, let's read the psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. 
I am the sort of person, when it comes to getting to a new place, for a start, no sat-nav, that's for wimps. Secondly, I read the map beforehand and then say to my wife, it's okay, I know where we're going. Then inevitably, without fail, about approximately 80% towards the end of the journey, we have to stop, get out the map and work out where we're going because I've got us lost. That tends to be the way it happens. With this first couple of lines this psalm, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain, I found myself in a similar predicament. I always found myself in a place where I thought, I know what this means. I know what it's about. And I got 80% into understanding it and then realized, I'm not too sure what it means. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Okay, who's building? Who's laboring? Is it all God? Is it all me? Well, it's not all me. Is it God? What, what, what's the balance here? What, what, what's, what does it mean for us in life? We don't want to be the people that find ourselves laboring in vain. Building something that doesn't last. Building something that has no eternal resonance. I don't want to be caught in that trap. I really want to understand what this means. Fortunately, for you and me, I think the rest of the psalm goes on to explain that. And that's really what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the rest of the psalm to get hold of what it has to say. But before we do, I just want to mention a bit more about this principle of partnering with God. This idea of God building and us laboring, but not in vain because God's building it. It's a principle that's interwoven throughout the whole Bible. So if we turn to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this famous phrase, as an apostle, I worked harder than all the other apostles. He was laboring. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. The Lord builds the house. And later on, or um, a little bit later on in Philippians 2, he says to, the, says to the Philippian church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Labor. For it is God who is at work in you. God builds the house. It's a principle interwoven throughout the Bible and one we need to make sure we get right and get the balance right. We need to make sure we understand it and live it out at the same time. So how do we know when we're getting it right? How do we know when God's building the house? How do we know when God's is watching the city? How do we know when we're laboring in vain? Verse 2 seems to give us straight away a helpful indicator as to whether we're laboring in vain or not. Verse 2 says, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. We seem to have two scenarios presented us before, before us here. We have, it says toiling for food. If you've got a more literal translation is anxious toil. It's kind of, Working with stress. It's kind of working with a element of um, anxiety. It's like, I've got to work harder because I can't make this happen. And at the other side, you have the sleeper. Someone enjoying God's love by sleeping. Now, I don't know about you, but I think there are plenty of people here committed to enjoying God's love through sleep. <laughs> Wives are suddenly prodding with the elbows. Um, Sleeping well is an act of faith. 
I can see piety raising and rising in more and more people. Sleeping well is an act of faith. What do I mean? I don't mean if you have sleep problems that you're not godly. Don't hear me wrong. Anxious toil. Stress and anxiety can be symptoms of self-reliance and a lack of trust in God to provide. See, the sleeper in this passage is someone in confidence in God to provide. Someone who knows God is building the house. Someone who knows God is at work. And a better translation of that last phrase is, is actually more like, while they sleep, he provides for those he loves. So if you don't sleep, it's not that God doesn't love you. If you have a bad night's sleep, suddenly the eternal God whose love is everlasting suddenly stops and you're no longer loved. Of course not. But it's more accurate to say that in God's grace, while we are unconscious, he is still fulfilling his plans for your life. It's not like when the lights go out, God stops working. The amazing testimony of God's power and grace in our lives is that even while we're unconscious, he's bringing about the purposes of God in our lives. It's like in, in Mark 4 where Jesus talks about the power of the seed and he says the farmer doesn't know how it grows. It kind of grows overnight. For us, sometimes, whilst we're asleep, the seed grows overnight. God does something miraculous in our lives. And it's a wonderful demonstration of God's grace and a wonderful, wonderful principle of God building the house. So for these people on pilgrimage, the people of God traveling up to Jerusalem, some of them would have been farmers. And for at least a week, if not more, they would have left their farm, their fields, their crops for a whole week. They could not tend to them. They could not water them. They could do nothing to them at all. Their confidence was in a God to, to, to provide for them, a God who provides for them. So they were no longer involved in anxious toil, but fruitful rest. They took the time away from their work to honor God and celebrate him, knowing that God would provide for them. It was a massive statement of faith. For us, as we look across our whole life, one of the key checks for us to see if God is building or we're laboring in vain is this. Are we involved in anxious, stressful toil? Or are we involved in restful labor? In our lives, are we involved in places, are we involved in a place with God where we're trusting him to provide or are we in a place where we're involved in fruitful rest? A key check for us. Not the only check, but a key check for us. And we'll refer back to that as we go through the rest of the psalm. And as we get to verse 3, it says, Sons are a heritage. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, is this suddenly a massive subject change? Have someone taken two psalms and lumped them together? Has Solomon lost the plot? What on earth is he on about? It is totally consistent. In fact, in this translation, the NIV, there is a missing word between those two sections of the psalm. And the word would have been translated something like, lo, or behold, something wonderfully archaic. For us, it's probably more something like, check this out, or for example, or e.g. 
So Solomon has laid out this massive, huge, life-changing principle of God building the house in order that we don't labor in vain. And then goes on to say, and a great example of getting this balance right is family life. So for the remainder of our time, we're really going to dig into what this psalm says about family life and then apply those principles more broadly to our lives. I'm hoping and I'm praying that through that we get hold of what God wants to do in our lives. My expectation is that God wants to speak into fundamental, life-changing issues. I wonder if your heart is ready for that this morning. I wonder if you just turned up for a nice meeting. Bit of worship, bit of preach, time to get downstairs for the coffee. Woohoo! Or have you come here genuinely to hear what God has to say? Is your heart soft and tender to what he has to say to you this morning? My prayer is that it is. We want to hear what he has to say. We want to hear what the word of God has to say. Please don't listen to me. Please listen what to, to what God has to say through me. So let's dig in to these last three verses. Children are a reward from him. Sons are heritage from God. There is a three to five percent chance that any act of marital intimacy will produce a baby. Three to five percent chance. Probability is not on our side. If you want to start a family or have a baby, you're going to have to work pretty hard at it. Or we come back to this principle. God builds the house. We don't want to labor in vain, although in that area of life, the laboring may be less anxious. Perhaps. Children are a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. Psalm 139. For you formed me and knitted me together in my mother's womb. Not I formed myself or through your parental activities you formed me. It was God forming children in the womb. God gives children As a gift, not because we deserved it or earned it indeed. He gives them as a gift. I was chatting to Mark earlier um, in the week about this, this part of the passage. And he was just noting the misnomer that is family planning. We get into this idea that we are going to plan our family. We're going to sort it out. We're going to make sure that it happens. Children are a gift from the Lord. Jules and I have experienced and come to know in our lives this principle quite well. Three and a half years of trying for Isabel. Three and a half minutes trying for Grace. Three and a half years of the third, which is due in a couple of weeks. We would have rather had children earlier on in life. We probably want a bigger gap here and a shorter gap there. But we've come to the place of just knowing it's not about us. Yes, of course, we have a small part to play in the process. 
But actually, it's God building the house. Children are a gift from him, a reward from him. And unless God builds in this area of life, we labor in vain. You see, no matter how well you measure your cycle and how accurate you are of when you should be involved in that act of intimacy. I'm trying to go for child-friendly euphemisms this morning. We're only on two at the moment. I thought we might get to four and five. We're just on two. Um, no matter how well we plan it, it comes down to God. And so it's an act of faith. It's walking with God. It's trusting him. It's getting hold of him in this. It's not a side project that doesn't involve God. It's not something we do. It's God's role and it's God's gift. How does that principle apply itself in the areas of life? We have a little part to play and God builds. God gives. Spiritual gifts, I think, are a good example. We don't get spiritual gifts because we're holy or because we're mature. We get spiritual gifts because we get baptized in the Spirit and God gives them. It's a free gift from him. And also, when we operate in spiritual gifts, there's an element of this same principle. So I don't know if you had this experience before. You may be, maybe not. You're sitting there in a the meeting, the worship's going on, and you feel like God impresses something upon your heart that you wish to communicate, and you feel will bless the rest of the church. So you mull over it for far too long and eventually pluck up the courage to come to the front and chat to one of the elders about it and you express in brief terms what you think it's going to be and then suddenly you find yourself in front of the microphone and this deep, huge, life-changing thought starts to come out of your mouth and you find yourself saying, God is nice. And so you think, that's not deep enough. That's not what I meant to say. That's not, the, no, I know, no, no. So you, you try to think of something else. Uh, God is really Nice. Just still not communicate. God isn't horrible. And then you think, oh, I'll just leave it. I'll just leave it. And you give the microphone back to one of the elders. And then you sit down and you think, well, that was a waste of time. What have I done? It's just a tiny little thing. It doesn't mean anything. And suddenly you notice one of the, the elders then sneak up quickly onto the stage and go, I just feel like, feel like God wants to, to, uh, to speak into this area. And actually, I'm going to preach now, and it really ties in, and we're going to go for that. And at the end of the meeting, you're having a little coffee downstairs. And then three, four, five people say, that was so helpful, what you said about God's unending love for me. It was so significant how you communicated. It's so accurately and so helpfully. You think, all I said was God was nice. That was it, really. But the fact is, God uses those moments because the Spirit anoints. They're spiritual gifts. They're not just gifts. They're spiritual gifts. So when we bring out little bits, it gets expanded. Case in point this morning, I'm bringing a little bit here. My expectation is that God is going to do something bigger with it. Yes, I've labored, but my confidence is not in my ability to communicate what I've prepared, but in God's spirit to be at work today as I speak in you. Principle worked out. What about in work life? Very briefly, in work life, interviews. My experience of interviews has taught me a lot of how God works. I've often walked out of interview going, nailed it! Absolutely stormed that bad boy. If they don't hire me, they are fools. And lo and behold, I don't get the job. I've walked into an interview, come out again and thought, what was the point? Oh, you've got the job. Our efforts don't necessarily correspond to the results. God builds the house. We want God to build our houses in every aspect of our life. We want him to be at work. We labor. Yes, of course we do. But there are parts of our life where our part, well, we, the part we play is very small and God's contribution is absolutely massive. 
Let's move on to verse 4. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. What are we aiming our children at? What are our children aiming at? What do they want to grow up to be? We asked this question of our youngest a few months ago, over tea. Gracie, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she, I think she actually stood up on a chair to announce this. I'm not, I can't remember quite exactly. I want to be a teacup. <laughs> That's nice, dear. Clearly, clearly you've been listening. Clearly you're ambitious in the Lord. Excellent. Now, she, she's a little bit of a joker, so she did it to get a laugh. But what are we aiming our children at? What do we want them to grow up to be? Are we giving them biblical aims? Or are we, are we, do we have other aims? Are we saying, oh, we want them to be, have this job? Or do we want them to be well-educated? Or do we want them to be popular? Or an excellent sportsman? Or a wonderful artist? None of those are necessarily wrong. But they're not necessarily biblical either. The fundamental biblical principle comes out of Malachi 2.15. Where God says... From the union of a man and woman, I want godly offspring. He was seeking godly offspring. Is that what you're seeking for your children? And this, we could apply this principle more broadly to church family in terms of those we are over in the Lord or leading in the Lord. Are you seeking godly offspring? Is that your primary aim to bring them through in the things of God? Is that what you're aiming them at? Ephesians 6, 4 says this. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. We have, perhaps, with God's help, a bit more to do in this area of life. When it comes to conception, we are heavily reliant upon God to do a lot. When it comes to training instruction of the Lord, we're still reliant upon God. But are we giving effort to training our children? Is it something you hope will happen at some point in time, or have you planned it? Do you think, well, every Saturday, I'm going to spend half an hour with my children just reading the Bible? Or is it something you can do on a daily basis? Are you planning it? Are you putting effort into it? Are you laboring? Not in vain, but working with God on this. But of course, it is a partnership with God. And for anybody who's left their children at the school gates, you know you've got to trust God with them. That was definitely our experience. There's a new stage in our relationship with God and our children when we left Isabel for the first time. Because suddenly, this is realisation, you no longer have total control over their environment. You no longer can be the first person they come to when they need comfort. It was a dramatic change. And so we had to almost sit down and say, God, we thought we trusted you with them, but we didn't. We want to trust you with them. Because there's some things that we cannot do for our children. We can aim them at certain things. But we can't make them be those things. We can't control everything in their lives. And we have to come to a place of trusting God. A place of fruitful rest 
rather than anxious toil. I don't know about you. Are you a parent who worries, who's anxiously working for your children, particularly when they're not there? Could this go wrong? Could that go wrong? It's completely understandable. We need to have a confidence in a God who provides, a God who builds a house. We need to come to him and ask him to do it. Because the po- firing arrows, you can... Archery, often... I've done, I've done archery uh, weekends away with youth quite a few times. So after the third time I'm doing it, I'm pretty much getting bulls every time. I don't, I don't mean to boast. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. But yeah, pretty much bullseye every time. So I went up to the instructor and, and pointed this out, seeing if he'd recruit me for the national team or something. And uh, he said, yeah, it's very good. Normally we fire over 50 metres rather than 10 metres, so don't get too cocky. I was like, all right, okay. In this scenario, a warrior firing arrows is probably running, maybe stopping for a second, pulling one out, firing it, and the enemy is moving around. That's a more accurate feel to parenthood. That's a more accurate feel to bringing people up in the Lord, that... You're just trying to get your arrow out. The children, come on, go this way, go that way, go this way. But then the wind's blowing out, the rain comes down, or the, the thing you're aiming at suddenly moves. We've got to trust God for the elements. We've got to trust God that the arrows hit the target. And children, please try not to be wriggly, wiggly arrows. If an archer was to pull an arrow out of his quiver and it was moving around like this, he wouldn't be able to fire it very straight. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a wiggly arrow? Well, what it means to be a straight arrow is to listen to your parents, to hear what they have to say to you, to see what they want to say to you about being godly and being like Jesus. See, part of the role they've got is to help you aim to be godly, to aim to be like God. Now, it's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? It's a really hard thing to obey your parents all the time, isn't it? <sighs> Have you tried to do that? It's really difficult, isn't it? We need to ask God to help us because God builds the house for you as well. And so we want to try our best to obey. But actually, even if you don't obey, even if you are a little wriggly arrow, your mommy and daddy still love you. And God still loves you. And he still wants to be friends with you. And he still wants to use you. But try to be as straight as possible in order that you can fly far for God and go as far as possible for him. What does this look like in other areas of your life? What are Children are a gift from God. What are the other gifts that God has given to you? It may be a financial gift. It may be a big house. It may be a skill or a talent. It may be a job. Now, Jeremy talked about this a few months ago in great detail, so I'm not going to dwell on this point. The point he was making this, God can use us in every area of life and he's given us gifts in order to glorify him. Just check yourself today. Are you utilizing the things God has given you for his glory? Are you allowing him to build his house in those things? Or is it something that you're laboring in in vain? Let's move on to the next verse. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. There is a movement in America on the basis primarily of this verse in the psalm. They have produced an evangelistic strategy that goes along the following lines. Have as many children as possible. That's simply it. 
They've been scared a little bit by the fact that purely on birth rate alone, Islam will increase more than Christianity. And so probably out of fear more than anything else, they suddenly committed themselves to having many as children as possible. Children are a blessing from the Lord, so let's have as many possible. Well, by all means, go for it. I'm not too sure that's exactly what this verse means. It may, may be, but my reading of it is slightly different. It says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, not blessed is the man with the biggest quiver or the most children. And so, if you look into and research extensively, like I did, then you find that you can't really ascertain an average number in the size of a quiver. It's more, it's either 60 to 80. Yeah, try that one. 60 to 80, or 12 to 20, depending whether you were a soldier in a chariot, so you could have a bigger quiver, or whether you were a foot soldier, so you could have a smaller quiver, because you needed to move. So, if you want to take the psalm more literally and put it in context, they've still got a lot to work to do. But for us, the point is this I'm making. It's not, the point is not, who's got the biggest quiver? The point is, is your quiver full? We can make a decision about the size of our family on the basis of finance, the size of our house, the size of our car, what society would condition us to think was normal. We could even make a decision on the basis of convenience. Actually, if we look back, children are a gift from God. We come to God. We want to make a decision about the size of our quiver, the size of our family, on the basis of obedience to God rather than convenience in our life. There's a story um, I read about recently where a family had three children. The youngest was about eight or nine. And on reading this psalm, he felt convicted that they'd made an arbitrary and, an, and an, a premature decision to cease having, increasing their family. They thought three is enough. That's fine. That's what makes sense in terms of our salary and the size of our house and our lifestyle. They repented of that came back to God, and they had three more children. So they had six children. His quiver, their quiver, wasn't full. They thought it was, but it wasn't full. There was more to fill it. Let's make decisions on those bases about, through what God says rather than what we think is appropriate. What's that? How does that apply to more broadly in life? In terms of family life, that's about our capacity for children. In terms of broad life, it's about our capacity in broader life. My observation is that in life, we get our assessment of the size of our quiver wrong quite regularly. An indication of this is the amount of anxious toil or labor that we experience in our life. And that often is a consequence of comparing ourselves to other people and making decisions on the basis of that. In other words, there's two ways that happens, I think. One way is this. We look at the lifestyle of people around us and think, I want that lifestyle. And so therefore, you commit yourself to working more hours, 
more days or getting a busier job or doing more work in order to get more money to have a lifestyle comparable to the, ne- the neighbours. In a brief term, brief terms, keeping up with the Joneses. And that causes anxious toil in our lives. In another way, in church life, we may say, we may look at someone and say, well, so-and-so's on the welcome team, they're a core group leader, they're serving in another project, and they've got a full-time job, and they've got a family who all seem to be rather godly. That's, we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough, clearly. We need to work harder for Jesus. We're not laboring hard enough. But the point is this, their quiver is probably bigger. How big is your quiver? You don't decide it on the basis of looking at someone else. You decide it before God in faith, perhaps chatting with good and wise and trusted friends to decide that. We make decisions about family life and about decisions about broader life on the basis of what God says. And it's not just the big ones either. Joshua came to God with Jericho. So it's massive. I need your help, God. God gave him the strategy. Walk around in circles for seven days. Walls come down. I think it's possibly the next episode in, in the story of Joshua. Two enemies come from the neighboring, um, uh, neighboring nation, pretending to be from far away. And because Joshua didn't consult the Lord, they tricked him and they ended up making a treaty with them, which meant that they couldn't do what God had said, which was take over all the land. The big decisions, we often come to God, don't we? God, big decision. What about the little decisions? What about what to do with the two hours you have in the day? What about where you should go on holiday or what sort of holiday you should have? Let's bring the big decisions to him and seek his input. Let's bring the small decisions to him as well. Last part of the psalm. They, which is um, talking about the parents, will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gates. In the culture which this psalm was written, um, the gates was the, the point, the court, the, the place where people would be tried and convicted. So the point here is that if you have a big family, you'll have many sons to defend you, many children to defend you in that place. So you wouldn't be put to shame, you wouldn't be convicted of being guilty when you were not guilty. As I thought about this, I couldn't help but be reminded of a son who is ensured that we are not put to shame. I couldn't help but be reminded of a son who has ensured that we have been declared not guilty. Romans 9.33 says this, The one who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. When we come before the great judge, when we come into the eternal courtroom, For those who believe in Jesus, for those who have trusted him, we will not be put to shame. We will be found not guilty. And yet, if there was an area of life which so accurately and fully demonstrated the principle of God building the house, surely it's the area of our salvation. What do we bring? What is our labor? We bring our sin. We bring our shame. We bring our guilt. 
We bring the punishment that we should have. We bring the wrath of God. That's what we bring to the equation. That's all we can do to build our salvation. In other words, absolutely nothing. What does God do? He sends his one and only son to die on the cross, to take our punishment, to put aside the wrath of the judge of heaven and allow us to be called not guilty, to allow us to not be put to shame. What a magnificent gospel. This is good news. This is not news we keep to ourselves. This is not news to hide under the bed. This is great and wonderful news. I've done nothing to earn my salvation. Jesus has done it all. I'm not going to be involved in anxious toil for my salvation. I'm not going to labor in vain for my salvation. I'm going to trust in the blood of Jesus to wash away my guilt and wash away my sin. And even as I've been talking, there are areas of your life that God has been putting his finger on. And I just feel like there's an element of shame or guilt that could have risen up. Maybe it was to do with having children. He'd been trying and trying and trying. Anxious toil, labor and labor. Oh, it's a gift from God. Lord, I want to trust you. I want to come back to you again. Maybe it's in other areas that God has just put his finger on. In work situations, doing too much of it. Or maybe with your kids, you've just been like, yeah, I've been, I've been aiming at the wrong things. If we come to him and confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. This morning, we want to be those who build with God. But know that it's God who builds the house. We want to be those also who are not put to shame. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Solomon started well. He knew this principle. He received gifts from God, wisdom, wealth, kingship, children, none of which he'd earned. He built God's temple, an amazing privilege. He brought peace and prosperity to the land. Somewhere along the line, it all went wrong for Solomon though. He may have been the writer of the psalm. He may have been the wisest man that walked the earth before Jesus. But he still got it wrong at the end of his life. I just be- I want to gently poke those of us who consider ourselves mature in the Lord. Consider this a gentle spiritual poking. Solomon rested on his laurels. And moved away from this principle. Unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Have you moved away from that principle? Have you suddenly confident in your own abilities rather than trusting in God? Are you making decisions on the basis of what you think rather than coming genuinely to God and ask him? As we get older, I think that becomes more of a risk. As a new king, Solomon was desperate for the wisdom of God in order to rule well. As an old king, he was desperate for more wives and more pleasure and more sin. 
Let's be like Solomon in his early days. Let's follow the wisdom he espoused at the start of his life rather than the life he lived at the end. Let's be those who understand this great principle of God building the house. And let us not be those who labor in vain. Let us be those whose labor is with God, increased by him, multiplied by him, and produces something of eternal resonance, something that counts, something that is valuable. May I also recommend, as I finish, this probably isn't for everyone here an immediate response. Some things God has put his finger on this morning. I hope and pray that's the case. And maybe we'll, we'll speak or pray into that in a bit. But for some of you here, the response to this morning is actually to sit down with a trusted and wise friend and chat this through in detail. It's to sit down with God and talk it through with him. Say, what does it really mean to build with you, Lord? Am I built on the right foundation? And for some people here, you've not even got Jesus as the cornerstone. We were singing about that earlier on. You cannot build with God unless Jesus is your cornerstone. Unless he's put away your shame and guilt, you can't build with him. So let's be those who build well. Let's be those who are involved in laboring with the Lord, but also fruitful rest. And let's be those who find ourselves not building in vain, but building for God's glory. Let's pray.